Hey, this is Two Dads Named Grant. I'm Grant Overton. And I'm Grant Vickery. And this is a podcast where we try to figure out how to be better dads and better husbands. We aren't experts, but we are earnest. And that is really, if, if I'm being honest, what I've got going for me, because if you look at my marriage as a whole, it's really, from my end, a string of incompetencies. And I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm still married after all of that, which means something about me must be incredibly charming. And I'm hoping that's what is communicated to our listeners as well. Hey I there, you two. tell my wife and other people that I have, what I have is a boyish impishness. Not just that that's I'm it, right? That's, that's no, how I like to frame it. <laughs> See, I have an excuse because I'm a younger brother. I don't know what your excuse is because you're an older brother. You're supposed to be annoyed at everyone and responsible. I'm supposed to be know, irresponsible right? and obnoxious. So I'm I don't just, know what you've been doing. Yeah, I don't. You know, I derive a probably inappropriate amount of pleasure from finding that line where you can be aggravating but not actually make somebody mad. Um, and yeah. mostly who I practice on right now are my dogs and my wife. Uh, soon my son, once he's old enough to <laughs> once he's like, old enough understand to be that I'm not just tormenting him. <laughs> right, right. No, I, and, and I, I know your sister as well. So I know that that's something that <laughs> <laughs> annoying her is really one of the greatest things one can do. So is, yeah, if you send absolutely. this episode to her, and I hope that you do, just let her know <laughs> that, that I am also a person who finds her annoyance or her being annoyed very entertaining. Um, but I'm excited about this episode. I'm super excited because we've been covering a lot of negative topics about like what not to do and things that could go wrong. And we've been talking about narratives as well and the kind of corruption of many of those narratives. But this week, we're talking about narratives that go right. And so that to me is really exciting because we haven't talked about narratives that go right yet, right? Yeah. No, I mean, maybe in brief, just kind of alluding to them. We haven't talked about any specifics other than a good positive narrative is a good positive thing. Right, yes. That that, that which is good is good, we say right. tautologically. And necessary. Uh, I think we, we talked more about that it was necessary. Yes, I yes, exactly. Because there is so much just like negative, hurrah, hurrah, everything is terrible going on around men all the time. And so to say that even though we're talking about this bad stuff, there is good stuff. We just aren't, <laughs> we're not talking about it yet, but we are talking about it this week. So each of us have chosen five men who we think exemplify specific traits um, that are positive masculine traits. And to reiterate something we've said over and over again, this doesn't mean that they're traits that only men exhibit or that only men should have, but these are traits which stereotypically are masculine and fit within masculine narratives. And even though girls can have them and should have them, um, this is what we consider to be kind of the ideal for manhood or masculinity. And that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would, only thing I think I'd add to that is we've talked about this before is that these specific examples of whatever traits we highlight from these characters, you know, that is not the only way to exemplify that. I think we chose these more as clear examples and powerful examples of specific desirable masculine traits um or just desirable traits and you put a masculine spin on it in some way maybe i think there are probably sure. some of those that exist as well and so that's not to say if you don't do it exactly like, like this is the ideal um especially because you know we're pulling from fiction so right. some of these <laughs> yeah. people are either going to be like ridiculously handsome probably because they're in movies or you know in the case of my list i have at least one large man who has has a sword all the time and i don't necessarily think you have to be large or sword wielding 
to exhibit his masculine. Well, no, you don't have to be large and sword wielding, but you do have to be large or sword wielding. You have to pick sure. one, right? Which is why <laughs> yeah. at at five seven, I always carry a sword. That's it's a, a little tidbit you can't tell from listening, but I'm actually a sword wielding right now. Um, no, but it, it is true. When you say specific, I think that's important because these are specific to you and me, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is my list of things when I imagine what I want to be as a man or as a father. Um, these are the traits that I want to embody. And it's been on my mind more and more because actually in one, two, three, four, or five, six days from now, um, we're going to find out the gender of our child for sure. Um, we did like kind of a, oh, a, a pre-test that's like, this might tell you. And so, which really all that does is make you doubt it more because you're not sure again, but we're going for right, yeah. uh, the sonogram exactly on Friday. Before, but now I'm unsure. Right, yes. Yes. <laughs> You've told me that it could be this, which I, again, knew that. So um, that's, that's really been heavy on my mind this past week. I'm excited about finding yeah. out and it, I, I've imagined what will happen when I do find out for sure. Right. Like when I find out for sure, I'm having a son. When I find out for sure, I'm having a daughter. I know there's going to be this giant perspective shift in how I view that gender right immediately right right? like if i have a son suddenly i'm like wow men are so it's so hard for men and we have to protect them and the same thing if (laughs) if i find out i'm having a daughter it's like women it's so hard for women we have to protect them and support you know that's that's it's gonna happen no matter what i know i know that's gonna happen um but anyway but these these this list right uh that we've come up with these lists rather are are positive characteristics for masculinities and and one of the reasons I wanted to do this, and, and we've talked about this a lot, and I don't know if I came up with this or you came up with this, but there is a pervasive, I think, uh, uh, feminine narrative going on right now that's basically saying what you've been told about women is wrong. And I think that's really wonderful, right? Mm. Uh, I think it's yeah. a really, really good thing. And I'm I'm glad that's happening for women, but I, I think that conversely... There's no narrative for what you've been told about men is wrong, or there is, but it's all the good things about men are not actually good things and you're bad and should feel bad. Does that make sense? Sure. Right. And there's, yeah, absolutely. And there's obviously accuracy that we talked about that a little bit in toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and with anything, any positive thing, too much of it or it applied in the wrong context can be a bad thing. You know, chivalry is the one that you hear sometimes. We talked about incels last week, bemoaned that chivalry has been killed by feminists and they won't let us be chivalrous anymore. And I mean, you certainly can be chivalrous. You just can't do it in a way that limits the agency of the women in your life anymore because they are fate people and frail and they exist only (laughs) as a, as a foil to your overwhelming masculine awesomeness, right? Like that's inappropriate, but you know, being polite and protective and opening doors for anyone, right. Including and up to women is not a bad thing. If that, you know, right. That's yeah. A I, example. Right. Or putting your I coat work... down on a mud puddle or something. I don't know if anyone ever has actually <laughs> done that in real life. Only maybe in cartoons. You did it for but... me that one time. It was really sweet. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've been breaking down barriers a long time, right? No, it's I would we say do. that's definitely true, though. And I and I really appreciate that narrative for women because stereotypes are useful only in humor, um, and maybe only in hurtful humor. I'd have to think about it, but they're not. Ooh, I don't know if useful. I agree with that. They're not useful in. Um, it probably depends on how sensitive you are. I don't, I, they're not useful for how you want to live your life and define yourself and, and do that, right? Because they're, they're, um, they're necessarily lacking. There's no depth there, and they are limiting. And so for women to be told, 
Forget stereotypes. Do whatever you want to do, including if it means you look kind of like the stereotype. That's okay, too. Right? I think there's still sure. maybe a little bit of stigma on some of those things because yes, they conform yes. to the stereotype. But there's more acceptance of it. There's a wider range. And it's basically just be yourself. Be true to who you are. Be your authentic person. Uh, to harken back to Carl Rogers, be congruent, right? That's an amazing narrative for yeah. women. And there's a lot of good examples for them, fictional and real. Maybe less so for men. Although I wouldn't say not in real life because hopefully we all have some of those. But fictionally, I think it can sometimes be harder to find those. Yeah, I, I would I would separate slightly the idea of stereotypes being useless from... I, I would have two categories. There are stereotypes which allow you to dismiss people, and then there are stereotypes which allow you to predict statistical likelihoods. And stereotypes mm. that allow you to predict statistical likelihoods are only good insofar as you don't have better information, right? Sure. So, yeah. like, if, if, you, if all you know about me and my wife, Jessica, is that... I'm the husband and she's the wife, if that's all you know. And then you have to make a bet about who is the bigger sports fan. Statistically, you have a much higher likelihood of betting on me. You'd be wrong because she's the way bigger sports fan. So I I don't want to say that stereotypes have no utility because I think they do. And I think we rely on stereotypes a lot. And, absolutely. And Our brain as, as mental shortcuts, right? Allow us to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Um, I, I think you could make the argument and I... This is not what we're talking about today, but I might be interested later in making the argument that when you deal with any individual on a personal level, um, I don't think you have to feel guilty if those come to your mind, but I don't know that they are how you should conduct yourself. But if we're placing bets in an experiment on a college campus for someone to write their dissertation for about who's the biggest <laughs> sports fan, because that's exactly what that sounded like to me. Yeah, yeah. So, that yeah, well, that's my, that's my world, right? Um, psychological study about something like that. Not the idea of do stereotypes exist, but you know, some sort of weird self-report survey that doesn't actually measure what it claims to. Uh, but I, I, I do think I would agree with you that there are some uses to it, but I guess my overall point was more, you're not dependent on those or you shouldn't be. You don't have to be. Yeah. I think that you're a hundred percent right about that. But my point that I was making was that stereotype and narrative are really hard to differentiate between the two. Um, and when we're talking about narratives as potentially good or potentially bad, I think that we can say the same thing about stereotypes to a degree, is that stereotypes can be good or can be bad, but what makes a stereotype or a narrative bad is when we look at it as fully predictive or limiting, right? So mm, it may yeah. be stereotypical that uh, women prefer dealing with people rather than things intellectually, right? So women tend to dominate fields like English where I work and psychology where you work, right? And That's men true. tend to dominate fields like engineering and mathematics. So the, are those stereotypes? Sure. But when we treat them as predictive and say, well, you're a man, so you can't be good at English or psychology and you're a woman, so you can't be good at engineering or mathematics. That's when it becomes problematic. So we can look at stereotypes as something that might be predictive or we might be able to guess at likelihoods but they shouldn't be the basis for us evaluating individuals because individuals are so diverse that you really it's really fundamentally it's only useful when you're talking about a large group of people right well and i think that's why one of the things that's going to be interesting to see with this list is where we're the same but also where we're different and different different stories and fictional or real life examples resonate with different people. And so I think talking about 
going back to the feminine narrative, right? There's not the June Cleaver or whatever. That's like the stereotype. Like this is the individual you aspire to be. And any of these, and I know this is something we're going to talk about, you know, these characters are nuanced or have flaws and not every single part of their personality should be emulated. But if you have a narrative about these are the traits and have an idea about how to act them out um, in general that you can then apply to specifics in your life. Like I right. said, you're not yes. a sword-wielding warrior. Um, and so not every specific example of that is going to be useful to you. But if you take the basic concept behind it... And, and the principles. Yeah, and the principles, exactly. And I have these... And what an amazing concept to say that people should have principles they live by. But I don't think that we always clearly articulate those to ourselves. No, we um, really don't. And it makes it hard to try to live by it. It makes it hard to know in the difficult moments, you know, to act on principles if they're not something you know so well that it's been ingrained. And I think also if you're able to articulate them, you have to be able to actually know what they are so that you yeah. can practice them. So when yes. the moment calls for it, right, you will act according to the way that you hope you will act as opposed to just acting. Yeah, yeah, and and two, two. I think we treat principles or the those the the principles of the narratives, the things that they're actually driving at. We treat them as somehow cliche or, you know, juvenile almost, something to be yeah. discarded with, and I think that does an enormous disservice to both the stories and to the people who are reading and internalizing those stories. Because the truth is that you're gonna hit a point in your life where you really need to imagine yourself as the hero, right? You need to see yourself as one of these guys that we're talking about, if you're a guy, or one of these guys if you're a girl, who, you know, I don't care, yeah, right? right? But you've got, to, you've got to be able to see yourself as as doing something heroic because it's going to be that hard. Even though it might be, to, to many people, simple or basic or easy, for you at that moment with the the context and your your sort of mental state at that time, it's going to be really hard. And so you're going to have to rely on this narrative and this principle. And so that's that's what I was thinking of when I created this. So it, yeah. with that said, without further ado, I think we should get into the list because each of us have five and I want to talk a little bit about each one. And we've boiled it down to a specific characteristic for each of these characters. And the, the reason being is that they're all flawed, right? They're all messed up. So we don't want to... Uh, we don't want to celebrate their flaws, but we want to acknowledge them. Would that be fair to you? Absolutely. I would say kind of like what we've talked about, the other point is not to say, well, here is the exemplar, right? And you only talk about this person. And um, I would add to that that we also want to boil down to a single characteristic or maybe a couple characteristics because taking a whole character or person and say, here, do everything that they do exactly like they do right. is typically not a good idea. Not only because you're not yeah. asking that question we just talked about, which is why are they doing what they are doing or what is the guiding principle, but also because, like you said, they're flawed. And if you just follow someone blindly, that's where you end up with bad male narratives and toxic masculinity because the trappings of what they have achieved maybe are what you're following, right? You're not, you're not seeing what they did to get there or how they did there or any of the nuance in their character. You're just kind of following a checklist of ways to look manly. Right. Right. So the first person on my list that I wanted to talk about, and each of us have five, but the first person on my list was Mr. Feeney. And I'm I'm nervous to start with Mr. Feeney because I feel like that's kind of the gold standard. And that's the only one actually that you also said you thought about including Mr. Feeney, right? This is true. Now, when you say the first one on your list, are you going in any particular order or is it just... Yes, I am. Okay. So he's the bottom or the top of your order? Oh, no, I'm not going in an order in terms of what I value most. I am going in order of what I value most. Never mind. 
I totally am. Yeah. So I'm going. I'm going in terms of what I, what the I value most. Mind realized what the yeah, mind it's. Has been doing. I, <laughs> it's true. Okay. Uh, um. But I. But even with that said, I'm very nervous to start with Mr. Feeney because he may be the gold standard, right? Sure. Like, the dude was pretty awesome. He was incredibly awesome. So. When I when I look at Boy Meets World, I grew up watching Boy Meets World. I loved Boy Meets World. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was one of two things that my brother and I had in common, right? We both <laughs> liked Boy Meets World and theater, and that was the end of it. You'd think there'd be more based on those two interests, but there wasn't. So um, <laughs> that was about it. Uh, and the primary ex- uh, um, characteristic of Mr. Feeney to me was that he had expectations for his students, that he expected them to, to to do well and to do more than what they even thought they were capable of. Mm. That to me is a very kind of, uh, that cause I teach, right. And so that's, uh, that's a very constantly present idea is that if you want to be a good teacher and you want to be, um, successful in helping students develop and become more than they are, then you have to have expectations for them. And when they fail, you've got to let them fail. Right. Mm-hmm. And because that's what an expectation is, Absolutely. is it's an allowance for failure, which I would say of all the things I'm going to talk about tonight is probably the hardest for me because very selfishly, when everybody, somebody messes up, I want to be the guy that's like, it's okay, it's fine. And that's easier on me, but it's not necessarily better for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're responding empathetically, but people don't always need that kind of empathy in that moment. Right. Um you know, they need someone to be able to be like, man, I feel bad for you, but you still missed the mark. Right. And, and to, and to allow for that, to say like, I am very sorry this is going on and I don't blame you or dislike you or hate you for it or whatever, but the consequences are there. They're they're the results of your actions. That's really hard for me to do. And that's one thing I think Mr. Feeney does very well is that his love for his students is unconditional and his relationship with them is ongoing no matter what they do. But his expectations are his expectations. And that's what causes them to, to develop and to rise and to become more than they are. That's That, to me, is the ideal masculine trait of Mr. Feeney um, as, okay. as a teacher, which, again, is specific to me, especially because that's what I do is I teach. And so that's it, it hits especially close to home. I'm curious, though, because you didn't include Mr. Feeney, but you said you thought about it. Why were sure. you thinking of including him? Um probably very similar reasons, especially that ability to hold people to a standard, to apply discipline, to express disappointment even sometimes, but without um, losing... I don't think they ever doubted that Mr. Feeney loved them and cared about them, right? No, Mr. Feeney might be disappointed, and man, especially as a father, you could have these in other relationships, but especially as a father, you know, to you know, parenting a child, um, letting them know the gravity of their actions or what they've done has been mm-hmm. wrong and there's going to be consequences, but you still love them. I mean, that's a important lesson to impart, right? That. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you, you need to do these things. They're the right things to do. And I'm not going to be happy with you, but I can be angry with you and also still love you or disappointed or sad or whatever. Right. And, and this is especially useful. I think for people who are trying to, you're, when you're a child, you're preparing to be an adult, right? That's what you're doing. Yeah, this is the training school for that. And so when you're a kid, you have punishments, which are 
arbitrary consequences for your actions that are described as undesirable because otherwise the stakes are so low. Like if you don't turn in a homework assignment as a kid, what is the actual consequence? Which is none, right? Nobody cares. Like it's not a real, like right. this is not a thing that has real implications. But if you abandon your responsibilities as an adult, there are consequences. And so there's a shift from child to adult where you go from punishments for your actions, which are arbitrarily imposed consequences, to consequences for your actions, which are just the results of what you do. Right. And if you don't have a Mr. Feeney, then you never figure out that your actions are going to have consequences. And so your adult life becomes miserable and you can't escape it. And so in many ways, Mr. Feeney's role is emotionally masochistic because he's got to do, he's got to punish kids he, that he loves and he doesn't want to. And that's, that's so hard to do. It is. And I, but he does it. Right. Exactly. I mean, you're, he's instilling patterns of behavior that are going to affect the quality of their lives ultimately. Right. Mm -hmm. And to be supremely selfish, as we would talk about in our definition of toxic masculinity would be to not worry about that or to focus on the wrong things or to respond in such a way that doesn't communicate love because, you know, I don't really care about that part of it. I just want you to knock it off or I want you to stop bothering right. me. Um, until right. you've abandoned that love part. So then you don't lose anything by just ignoring, right, the consequences. Be like, well, that's not me that that happened to. So it doesn't matter if you don't ever learn anything. Yeah. Yeah. So Mr. Feeney to me is, I don't think someone who most people would think of, obviously you did, so maybe it is, but of like ma overtly masculine, right? He's a, a small man. He's reserved right. but i think he has in terms of consistent expectations um and and also those expectations in the context of unconditional love i think that he has an an incredibly powerful masculine trait like this this very wonderful primary characteristic right he's a and great father that he, yeah that may be the one thing that i am most concerned about going into fatherhood with that i want to be able to keep up mm. with yeah Wow. All right. Really who's who's your number? Who's your number five? So did you rank them in order, by the way, I or is this just order? I realized okay. that my order, kind of like you, I'm like, what am I actually ranking these people? But it feels right, and I rank them in order of, I would say, I don't know, complexity of the idea, you know, maybe, okay, um, or, yeah. or or maybe just complexity of the example, because my first one is Calvin's dad from the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, uh, who's obviously <laughs> okay. it's a comic strip, so it doesn't say the character doesn't have depth because that would be. The exact opposite of what uh, Bill Watterson was going for in his comic. That's a kind of right. And Bill Watterson is amazing. So, yeah, that's, yes. yeah that's, his goal was to kind of prove that comics as both an art form and a medium for expressing ideas have value. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it, it's like four or five panels. There's not a lot of dialogue. We don't see him. Many of the strips don't even feature him, right? So when we do see him, what right. am I taking away? And his primary characteristic, I would say, is patience, which... If you know anything about Calvin and Hobbes, that's something you, his, both his parents, um, Calvin's, would have needed uh, in space, yes. right? Because he is <laughs> right. um, very imaginative and smart and uh, creative, but also doesn't really care much for authority or following the rules. You know, he's, he's kind of the square peg in the round hole of society a little bit. And so yes. you need a lot of those, a lot of patience to deal with that. And I think my... The reason I would say that he is patient, because we see him getting angry and frustrated with Calvin, but we also have a lot of examples in the comics of him, kind of similar to with Mr. Feeney, that idea of I'm going to come back and I'm going to love you. And he, you know, he works a job that he doesn't particularly care for in the comics. He's a patent attorney, but we see to a hilarious effect that he loves things like riding his bike on frigid cold mornings and camping and, 
doing so being trapped in an office and not being in the outdoors isn't exactly his idea of a good time, right? But he works a, a job like that to provide for his family. But he frequently talks about, you know, wanting to spend time in Calvin, or we see him spending time mm-hmm. in Calvin, and he cares about his character and puts up a lot of Calvin's antics. Uh, the yeah. best example, when I was thinking of this, my favorite example, there's a series of strips he does. It's a running joke where Calvin talks to his dad as if he's up for re-election as dad and tells him <laughs> yeah, he's hurting the about, polls yeah. because, you know, we need more desserts and, and later bedtimes and, right. you know, do you want to stay dad? It doesn't look like you're going to with these numbers. And he kind of just takes it in stride with a kind of sarcastic, dry wit uh, as well, but doesn't get mad yeah. and doesn't, you know, explode at him questioning the authority. It's just, well, you're being a kid and I'm going to kind of put up with that and I'm going to have this ability to keep on doing what I need to do and not losing, you know, my mind at at you. I think it happens once that yeah. I can remember where he shouts at Calvin um, in a truly angry way. Not just like, hey, you you know, stop doing that because I'm raising my voice to get your attention. But I'm actually furious with you. I think it happens once that I remember. And uh, he apologizes for it later. So there you go. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, well, okay. So two points on that. First of all, being able to apologize to people who are technically like under you authoritatively, I think is really important. And the, the second thing, and really important undersells it. I think that comes from character. I don't think you can do it if you don't have the right character. So that, that's a character trait that I think Calvin's dad has. The other thing that's true for both Calvin's dad and Calvin's mom is that whenever they're drawn, they're both consistently drawn in the middle of work or in like various states of exhaustion. Sure. And <laughs> those various states of exhaustion don't have a direct effect on how they deal with Calvin. It's like they've got a separate pool of patience where it's like you're learning and trying. And yeah, which, and so I'm going to allow you to do that. And that's where that I'm, I'm holding that special reserve for you, despite the fact that I am so tired that I can't, I don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, from experience, you are always on. That's one of those things that people say to you before you have a kid and you think you get, and then you have it and you're like, Oh no, you really <laughs> meant always. Oh like, yes. Even when I'm asleep, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, is my son okay? <laughs> you know, like, right. Right. You know, it's like, there's, there's no time that you're not on and concerned with what's going on with your child or doing something for your child. Uh, and so, yeah, I, that's a good point to have that well of patience there, especially with a kid like Calvin, who is, you know, gets up to a lot of insane things because otherwise the comic would be boring. If <laughs> he you does. It would, if you didn't, it would be peanuts and we already have peanuts. And so we do already have peanuts. And if you haven't read Calvin and Hobbes, you really should. Like, uh, yeah, you, you are. I mean, missing honestly, out. Um, yeah, you've something has gone wrong in your life if you haven't read <laughs> the only thing that you should if you haven't read far side gary larson's far side you should do that first but second would be keller and hobbs <laughs> and you'll get a different answer depending on which grant you're talking to this grant is going to say far side first that grant's going to say calvin and hobbs first it's i get the feeling definitely true the last thing i'll say about him just because you mentioned it you mentioned calvin's mom who's in the strip a lot more uh-huh um, because she she's a stay-at-home mom and he's at home in the summers or afternoons or mm-hmm. what have you right so um this is not to say that Calvin's mom does not also have patience um, because she also has no, to deal she with does. Calvin's dad. Yes. And as we see, and she has to deal with Calvin more frequently, which is right, terrible. Right. But we see in a couple examples in the strip that Calvin gets his mischievous rebellion, probably from his dad, the way, he, uh-huh. you know, he's yeah. got that sarcastic streak going on. So yeah. having to deal with, but, and speak, you know, that I would say that's probably accurate to a lot of people's lives. I know that was like, it wasn't my household. My mom had to deal with, you know, me being a sarcastic, annoying rambunctious child and my dad might not have been rambunctious but he's definitely been known to be sarcastic and probably annoying too so <laughs> good, on, good on you mom when you listen to this for dealing <laughs> with us having the exact same sense of humor and desire to be as aggravating as we possibly can yeah well and i think that this this plays true for both um 
well, for a lot of families and for Calvin's family as well, is that if you are the stay-at-home parent, whether you're the mom or the dad, then the other parent goes to work and then feels like they can turn off when they come home. Right. But the thing that you've been dealing with is still present. You know, yeah. like that's that's a cold way of saying the child you've been dealing with. Thing, yeah, you don't maybe clock not the out. best. Right. right. But yeah, you can't clock out. And so there's this perpetual exhaustion. And I think that that's the, there's the cliche of a man's work is from son to son, but a woman's work is never done. And I think what we <laughs> might adjust that to in the present era is that if you've got a nine to five, your work is from son to son. But if you're responsible for being the primary caregiver, your work is never done, um, yeah. which is as far as pithy phrases go is maybe the worst. But um, I, do, I do think that's present. So while I do short response, yes, patience, Calvin's dad, incredible, not to the exclusion of Calvin's mom, but also are really, I think Calvin's dad kind of exhibits the awareness that, Calvin's mom has been dealing with it when he deals with Calvin in the comic strips, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right, um, we're ready to go forward to the next one for me. Cause my next one's kind of weird. I don't know if you'll know about this too much. Um, but my next one is Luke from Gilmore girls. Have you ever seen Gilmore girls, by the way? I have, I have either accidentally or somewhat against my will, since I'm not the kind of person to physically sees the remote and change the channel seeing at least an episode of Gilmore girls. I cannot tell you who Luke is. Is he the one with the flannel and the backwards hat? I remember a guy. He's the one with the flannel and the backwards hat. Yes, that's Luke. Okay. So first of all, I would say, I would say go watch Gilmore Girls. Like it's, it's good. Okay. Uh, Amy Sherman Palladino is the, the person who writes it and directs many of the episodes. She's fantastic, especially for people like you and me who really like the back and forth. Um, um, yeah. There's a ton of that in the show. the The script. That's true. For, I didn't know it was known for that. Laura Graham yeah, the, is, the scripts like thing, are right? twice as long as for, most scripts for similar length shows because it's just rapid fire. Tons of pop culture references. Many of them from the 80s and 90s. So, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're 25 plus, you're gonna have a heyday if yeah, you watch this. Only 90s you have kids will get the Gilmore Girls. Only only 90s kids will get this. Yeah. Um, but the reason that I chose Luke specifically, so Luke owns a diner and um, Luke was not very good at school. And I, if you remember, if, if you're a, if you're a long time listener, um, <laughs> if you remember from one of the first episodes, I talked about, or you and I both talked about who our ideal, like the ideal male was right. That, mm-hmm. that masculine trope. And I picked Luke for that because in many ways he does exhibit some of the kind of negative traits of I'm not good at school. I'm not particularly good at conversation or communicating my emotions. You know, everything's kind of cut and dry and plain to me. Um, yes. And there's thing. Yeah. Feelings are dumb. And one of the things that's funny is that the show is usually very, it's paced very rapidly until it's Luke talking. And then he'll have a lot of like one or two word replies. No. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> but why, you know, and it's, it, it, there's, there's a lot of sort of gender difference represented there that may not be representative of reality, but it's certainly representative of his character. But the reason that I chose him is actually because, and the primary characteristic that I chose for him is acceptance. So his nephew, a character named Jess, he, Jess comes into town and he is kind of a leather jacket wearing ne'er-do-well and... <laughs> This is a small town, a very tightly knit community, and Luke is a cornerstone of this community, and everybody hates Jess. 
they don't trust him and with good reason he's not a he he's not immediately trustworthy oh okay and while everybody is saying we don't trust him and we don't think he's a good kid and we want him gone luke accepts him into his apartment which is very small and it's above his diner and says yeah come live with me and it doesn't plan on it right he shows up out of the blue and it exhibits that Feeney characteristic of having expectations for him as well. And no matter how many times Jess messes up, which is a lot of times, and most of his mess ups are with Luke. Jess will mm. be kind to a lot of people, but brutal to Luke. I mean, saying the meanest things he can think of, which are clearly designed not to exhibit truth, but designed to sting. They're designed yeah. to hurt. And he's he just tolerates it and knows that what this kid needs is unconditional acceptance. Mm. And so and he's he's always got that. And so I talked to Jess about this, um, about using Luke because she is much more familiar with the show. And this ties into the Feeney thing as well. Um, at one point, Luke is driving a car and gets in a wreck with another character, and it's him being irresponsible, and he panics and leaves. Okay. Oh wow. And when he comes back. Uh, Luke accepts him, right? He accepts Jess back. But he says, things are going to have to be different. Here are the things that I said that you needed to do before that you didn't do. You got to do them now. And Jess doesn't do them. And Luke kicks him out. Yeah. Um, And says, you've got to go back to live with your mom. You know, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. Yeah. And that said, by the end of the show, again, Jess is back. He's been away for a while. He's grown up. He's matured. And he's back. And he's got a great relationship with Luke. And that that expectation combined with acceptance, the initial move is accept. Like, I don't care where you are, who you are, or what you've got going on. I'm going to I'm gonna take care of you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the benefit of the doubt, even if you don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. That's something that I know that, like, when I've been in the worst times of my life or, or in the worst positions and being the kind of worst per- the worst version of myself – just somebody accepting me and then also having expectations for me, man, that really motivated me. You know, that made me want to be better. And so that's the second sort of masculine trait. And it's it's almost masochistic because he has to take a lot of abuse from the people in the town and from Jess. He gets no thanks, but he does it anyway. Mm-hmm. So you said his primary characteristic, characteristic is that acceptance of what he doesn't understand or what doesn't fit in. Yeah, he makes, right. yeah, because Jess makes no sense to him. Totally different. Sure. Music taste, fashion taste, behavior. Like, he doesn't understand him at all, but he just accepts him for who he is. Right, and so then all of the positive qualities he has to give, all the love, all the patience, all the kindness that he would extend and has extended, it sounds like, to other people in the show. It's like, well, you don't have to you don't have to earn that part. You might have to earn respect, you might have to earn privileges, but my positive regard for you and my love you for have you that by not, default. Yeah, you have it by default. And, and that is, it's the hardest to give to people that you don't understand or that do things... That you don't understand. I mean, when we say don't understand, we tend to think like, oh, it's confusing. Why would you like that? You know, things like you wear a leather jacket, which doesn't really matter. But people's <laughs> right. behavior and how they conduct themselves. Yeah, it does. That happens frequently, I think. That you don't understand why somebody would act the way they do because you're not in their head. And sometimes it mm-hmm. is egregious things like what you described. I think other times it's smaller things that in some ways are harder to let go because it's even harder to wrap your head around. Like, why would you just choose to be that way? Why do you prefer, you know, getting up right. early? When, when, you, could be this other, or yeah. when you could be this other way. That's yeah, like me. Exactly. Be my yeah. way. And it would just, everyone was me. It would, it would be, be better. Easier, right. Yeah. yeah. I think this connects too to Luke's uh, position as like the guy who runs the diner because the town is full of like quirky oddballs because it's a TV show. Right. And 
as the guy who runs the diner, they all come into his diner and they have these bizarre requests and demands. And so his diner is this kind of like, it's, it's a place that's a, a, almost a tabula rasa. It's this blank slate for the bizarreness comes in and he accepts it. And he's like, you can be weird here. Um, there's, there's a scene that's really powerful. It's not meant to be powerful. It's meant to be funny, but I take it as very powerful where a character named Kirk, who is odd to the nth degree. I mean, it's very, very aw- yeah. socially the awkward. Village crazy person, right? He's the, he's the village crazy man. And this is the crazy person. Uh, everybody in the village is crazy. He's the crazy of crazies. And he has a date. And he wants to reserve a table at the diner. But the, ta- the diner doesn't do reservations, right? And so he comes in and he wants this to be perfect. And so Luke is exasperated by this, you know, and we see him being annoyed. But when it comes time for the date, there is a table that has other tables scooted away from it. There's extra room. The lighting is dimmed. There's flowers on the table. And there's like a special menu. And when Kirk freaks out in the middle of the date, Luke is there, like Kirk walks behind the counter, breaking all the rules, and Luke is there to like say, it's okay. You know, I think she actually likes you. That's why she's behaving that way. So go back and just be yourself, you know? And it's that same kind of, look, bring bring your weird to me. Bring your different to me. I don't have to get it. But all I all I have to offer you is that I accept you for who you are. And I that's something that I really want to do because, again, my child is not yet born. I have no clue what kind of kid <laughs> yeah. this is going to be, you know? I have no clue. My brother and I are, are are night and day. We are oil and water fundamentally different. So there's no telling what you're going to get. And this is something that I really want for myself. Like if my kid comes out and is like, you know what I love? I love the outdoors and sports. And you know what's dumb? Books are dumb. <laughs> like I'm not going to know how to respond to that because that's the opposite of me. But I yeah. need to be able to accept it. So I want that to be a characteristic I have. Right. Well, and I, I think just applying that to how you just conduct yourself um, in general, that kind of flies in the face of yeah. that toxic stereotype of, well, I've got to hold my ground and there's a, you know, I have standards and man, I'm not going to accept this. You know, the dad from the show from the fifties when daughter brings home the hippie boyfriend, right? Um, right. Archie Bunker. Shows it. Um, yeah. Archie Bunker or um, Wonder Years, right? Isn't that yeah. Wonder Years, I believe as well. I, so, I don't know. Um, You're older than me, so I don't remember Wonder Years. You're ancient. <laughs> Yeah, it's the guy from uh, uh, the Greek wedding movie. That guy, he's like the hippie boyfriend who thinks Vietnam oh. is a terrible idea and all ah. stuff like that, which is hilarious well, he was right. now. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we look back on it now, we're like, well, it was obviously a bad idea, but not everyone felt that way at the time, right? That's it. Yes. And so, it, anyways, all I have to say, you can conduct yourself in such a way, it requires a certain kind of strength, a greater kind of strength to be flexible enough to accept that and still do yeah. what is right as opposed to saying these are the, con- the conditions under which I will treat you with dignity and respect and right. you have not met them therefore I will ignore you and treat you you know and bully you or something like that so yeah it, it takes strength and confidence in, in who you are which I think is actually a nice segue talking of strength and confidence to your next person because I've got the list up and I'm looking at it and I, I really want to hear what you have to say about this guy yeah so my next person is uh Ron Ulysses Swanson from Parks and Recreation. <laughs> if and, and well, I mean, do we need to say anything more about a person other than their middle name is Ulysses? That's pretty, I don't think so. Um, that's pretty amazing. He is for those of you that live under a rock. Again, this one's pretty recent. Um, mm-hmm. Is uh, one of the main characters in Parks and Rec. He's played by a person whose name escapes me. Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman played. Yeah. I just think of him as Ron Swanson, even though Ron Swanson. Well, he is. 
Well, <laughs> is, is he at this point? I mean, honestly, you know, who's, I think who's the real art begins to imitate life. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so so Ron is the director of the Parks and Recreation Department, and he is a staunch libertarian. Which you know the his character in and of itself is a joke, right? That he worked for the government and right. is a staunch libertarian. Um, my main characteristic for Ron is integrity and Mm -hmm. the reason being for those of you that haven't watched the show is ron plays the role for leslie nope who's amy poehler who's the real main character he's her kind of spiritual and emotional guide they are very different oil and water to use your phrase Uh but they they have an amazing relationship and oftentimes they are calling each other on their crap and when they are not doing well or you know but they also appreciate the differences and see that yes. their strengths are different and complement each other and so for ron you know if the to me i kind of have two definitions of integrity and i think ron fits both of them one is what do you do when no one's watching like how strong are your principles do you actually follow them all the time and that is absolutely ron to a point yes. where it's a joke yes right where he says to himself you know you know i don't care for jokes because jokes are basically lies and i don't lie or my personal maybe my favorite joke in the whole series where there's only two things in the world i hate you know, uh, are lying in skin milk, you know, and which is water that's lying about being milk. <laughs> <laughs> and so the man has some very hard, and he sticks to them all the time and he will not deviate from them. He's very consistent. Um, yes. Right. Exactly. I mean, obviously, you know, again, it's a show and he's human. So there are times when he messes up, but it's like, you know what you get with Ron Swanson and you know that mm-hmm. he's going to be somebody who's going to treat you um, as he would treat anyone else. He is not going to do the things that he thinks are wrong. He is going to actively do the things he thinks are right, which is an important part of integrity, I think, too. Not just to not mess up or to not do bad, but to also seek to do good, right? Um, my, my second kind of definition of integrity, then, is the uh, it's really more of the same. It's that kind of consistency, but there's the inward kind, right, where it's like, how do I choose my own behavior? I have this principle. Maybe no one even knows about it, and no one would blink twice if I did something right. that went against. Some might even encourage me because they think my principle is inconvenient or dumb. Yes, but I, I don't deviate from it. But also then externally, how I extend those to other people. So how do I treat other people? How do I interact with them? Is that consistent and well? And it's the same thing for Ron. There are people that are very, very different from him um, that he still treats with kindness and respect and understand. I mean, the b- biggest example is Leslie Nope, right? They're so different politically, which we all know nowadays that if anyone differs from you politically, even a little bit, then yeah, yeah, I was going to bring this up, yeah. Yeah, they're the enemy, and that I mean, that, and that and I say that jokingly, but that is really hard to do, depending on what the situation. It's so it's so is. hard, and that's very that's um, abundantly real now, right? And and the thing that they like they disagree on whether the government should even exist. I mean, you can't yeah. have di- bigger differing political views than that, can you? Uh, but what right. matters, they are the same on, which is that you know, you should be honest. You should treat people with kindness. You should do what you say you're going to do. You should work hard at something, right? Whatever it is you're going to do. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing to the best of your ability. And he, they both exude those qualities and he's able to recognize that in her. And so despite that she frustrates him or, you know, actively works against things that he wants sometimes, he maintains that respect in their friendship. And that's a kind of integrity that is so important to me because man, as an example for someone that's watching you. And that's, you talk about what keeps you up at night or what worries you. The fact that my son, <laughs> even now, is always watching me. And I'm like, man, there's really time Please you stop. not be watching. Don't look. Don't look. <laughs> Either because you don't understand that, you know, what I'm doing. And that's just kids, right? There's some situation, yeah. you know, um, different from the adult situations that they put on the backs of movies or on TV shows, right? There are adult situations. That's speaking of Calvin and Hobbes. That's a Calvin and Hobbes joke. But yeah. There are adult situations where you are 
you know, paying your taxes or your mortgage or doing things you don't want to do, even though they need to get done, right? That's a very adult situation. Right. And kids don't get that. But there's also the, you know, they're just watching, like, especially when you're doing something that you're not supposed to do. I think they have a radar for that. Like, dad's about yeah. to get mad about something, right? So let me watch and see how he gets mad. And if you're the kind of person that's like Ron Swanson, where angry, mad, good day, bad day, doing what you want to do, doing what you don't want to do, you're going to be um, a person of integrity and be consistent. Man, that is, I think, a powerful thing for other people to observe. Yeah. And, and the thing is, Ron's a man of few words, right? And he doesn't tell people what's right. He just exemplifies it for them. Right. Still and don't talk to him sometimes. It's one of the jokes there. Right. Because um, it, there's just something about that where you know that someone's going to walk the walk that you can't, you want to be drawn to that and you want to be around it. And so... I think that's the thing that I would, you know, take. You want to talk about manliness, right? Like that men is the leader and the person out front. If you want to be that person, you've got to be that person in a way that is um, with integrity, right? And and it is earned rather than um, kind of bestowed or just happening. Um, and often I think for things that don't, we don't typically associate with that kind of status, right? So, right, right. I, I want to go. He's the opposite of a Kardashian, right? He actually yeah. has a reason to be famous <laughs> and to be, to be emulated yeah i, I want to go back though yeah because i i agree with you 100 percent, and this is a great example but i want to go back really quickly to your example of um swanson and nope in terms of their political differences sure. and i i think that the the way that i think about this is that while he thinks leslie is wrong politically i think he views her as someone who's right personally and so if mm. she has a goal that she's trying to carry out because he knows that she's a good person and, and of good character, then he can support her actions from a personal standpoint, even if politically he's opposed to them because of where they're coming from. And I think that's something that we've often lost sight of, especially when we're dealing with strangers. And he's not in that case. But I think that's a, a big part of it is when we're dealing with strangers, we just assume the worst about them. Right. Definitely. So if you're on the right, like I am, and you see people talking about like, we need more, like, like let's, let's advocate for universal health care. You see that as these people want to seize control and power for themselves. Right. And that's, that's the wrong approach. Right. You, you shouldn't assume that. Right. You should, you should assume, you should give them the benefit of the doubt that, that this is that same, it's integrity and it's acceptance of maybe these people want to just help people who are suffering. Right. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, I had a conversation with a guy at Georgia State who who's in my, my program, and there was a particularly heated class where someone asked if I was joking about being a Republican or actually a Republican. And when I said I was serious, there was a collective gasp. It was, they thought it was a meme. Um <laughs> Because there's there's not any there, right? And afterwards, yeah, he was no like, "No sane and upright person would be a Republican." Right. Well, there's there's that's a defensible position. But he <laughs> he said, "Like, man, I think that the thing that he's like a a, a bro, you know, like a he's a bro, and yeah. he's like, man, you know, you and I just want the same thing. We just don't agree about how to get there." It's like you're exact you're exactly right about that that we both want what's best for everybody we want people to be happy we want people to be healthy and taken care of and we disagree about the way to get there and if we can assume that about one another then we can move forward and so swanson is able to put aside his politics because he knows that leslie is such a good person right Absolutely. and 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 i don't think i think a lot of people they play that sort of like my team versus your team thing and so 
because Leslie would be on a different team than him, a lot of people who don't have that kind of integrity would never see the kind of person she is. And I think that's tragic. And and, and to be fair, Leslie does the same thing, right? Leslie knows that Ron's a really good person. Yes. Well, you, you have know? to have that kind of integrity, I think, to recognize yeah, it for what it is. You do. Others. And, you know, the, the humorous example is he's building chairs for a restaurant opening and, you know, it's taking hours and hours and they need to be done. And he's like, can't you just lower your standards a little bit and get them done faster? And he just looks at him with like this grimace and just, <laughs> no. Like, how dare you suggest that, right? I mean, that's the kind of seriousness, that, again, to a comic level. But I think right. that really articulates an important point that, I mean, this is an almost universally beloved character. Yes, right? and, people and love it. And those are hard to find. Like, and people love um, Leslie Note for the same reason, even though she can be domineering and pushing and annoying. Right. Right. Um, even more than Ron can be frustrating and stubborn is because, man, like at the end of the day, you see what they're willing to do for others and that they right. truly believe what they believe. And what they believe is that I, you know, I want to make the world a better place or I want to do things the right way. So that would be, yeah, uh, integrity would be Ron's characteristic for me and why I put him on my list of uh, manly men. Yes. Yeah, it's a great, have, it's a great I'll, choice. Yeah. I want to hear about your next one. My quick question is, do we want to go through all these or do we think we're going to need a part two? I I think if we can go a little bit quicker because I, I know that the next two that I have, I can go through pretty quickly. And then my third one is so obvious that it doesn't merit much discretion. So we, we got to move a little quicker. Let's I bet we can get yeah. it done in 25 minutes. Yeah, that's um, good. it'll be a little extra. Again, it's fun. So yeah, those of right. you that are still here listening, you've got a little bit longer to go, but bear with us. Put it on two times speed. You'll be fine. Um, oh, there you go. So my next my next example was Graham. Graham, uh, as we would say in America, but Graham. Uh, <laughs> Jude Law from The Holiday. If you've never seen The Holiday, it's a great Christmas oh, movie. Man. It's really good. Yeah. Jack Black is movie. phenomenal. It's a great movie, yeah. They're all um, good. And so I I actually, I don't, I don't even want to talk about this at length. We can go straight into yours after I just sort of give the setup because his story really speaks for itself. He's a widower and he has two girls and he plays kind of the role, almost the Danny Tanner role, but without Uncle Joey and Uncle Jesse to help where he works full time and he takes care of his daughters and the scenes, you you have to watch it to really, that's why I don't want to talk about it because it really needs to be seen. If you watch the way that he interacts with his daughters, there's a gentleness and a confidence and a support where it's like he is so fully there for them and the reason that that's so meaningful is because when we see him outside of that context he is clearly a very broken man he's lost his wife he's overworked he's exhausted and alone and what he makes sure of is that he's there for his daughters and so when I think of the kind of man that I want to be, I, I don't know what the future holds, right? I'm going to be, I, my, my kid's on the way. I don't know what will happen, right? Um, I am blessed with a functioning body. I have all of my faculties about me and my wife is healthy and everything is good. That doesn't mean it will be. And I'm still intimidated by the thought of having to raise a kid and I want to be the kind of person that no matter what happens, I put I put my best foot forward for my children to give them everything mm. that they need. And that's, uh, um, I think, the, the primary characteristic that I wrote for him was adaptability, 
which is not, it doesn't even do it justice, right? Because mm-hmm. how do you adapt to the loss of the person you said you're going to spend the rest of your life with? I mean, you don't, right? You just, you, you learn to accept grief as, as a, a mode of existence. But right. that's, that's what I, that's what I saw in him that I really, that I really valued. Um, so what's, what's your next one, by the way? I'm, I'm curious I, uh, about that. I, that. That's a great example. I love that movie there. We could, that's a movie that bears talking about, I think. Um, yes, I, I agree. Amazing. My next one is one that nobody, very few people, the people closest to us that we shared this with will know who this is because we won't shut up about the Wheel of Time. And because they're but, good people and good people yes, have read exactly. this. Yes, exactly. If anybody else uh, listens to this, um, or when you do, when other people that don't know us have listened to this. Uh, the unwashed masses. The yeah, and if you, if you haven't, you're missing out. But the Wheel of Time is an epic Think Lord of the Rings, Song of Ice and Fire, you know, big tome fantasy series. But good um, like character, good like Lord of the Rings, not bad like Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> the the character I'm speaking about, his name is Lan Mandragoran, which is of course he's in a fantasy book, so his name has to be hard to say, right? Right, naturally. Um, and without giving too much context, he he is your sword guy. He is your um, stoic martial you know, kind of manly man. He can track in the wilderness. He can fight many foes at once. He is, you know, got some sort of past tragedy that makes him sensitive and broken. So the, he's the Aragorn, right? He's the, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of, think that kind of thing. Think basically Aragorn, but different series, right? Well, the divining characteristics I choose for Lan are, I, I couldn't limit it to one, so I had to do two, which is perseverance and humility. Which are not um, that different, frankly. If no, yeah. yeah I, honestly, and the more I thought about it, the more you do need one to do the other. Uh, the, the humility aspect of it comes from just being this person that is dripping with prowess, right? He is equipped to handle so many situations. And like in a, and the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to pick him, just I wanted to have at least one person who is capable of great violence should they choose it necessary. Yes, on yes. this list because when he chooses to apply it, he does it in the name of justice. He does it in the name of defending those who cannot defend themselves, um, oftentimes at with a lack of care for his own well-being. And so um, I, wa- I wanted someone like that to exude humility because you don't have to, right, when you're big and strong and powerful, depending on whatever kind of power it is, right? Uh, humility isn't often you can get away without it if you're a powerful person. Yes. And Lan, um, throughout the series, is someone who acts at the behest and instructions of others. He is someone who does not seek personal glory for himself, although, again, Aragorn, he's from a royal line, right? One of those kind of things. The, the, glor- the, the glory is available to him, which makes the refusal valuable. Right, exactly. And he's someone that people want to follow, but he doesn't want them to follow him. And if we're talking about flaws, there's that would be that would be his, is the, the reluctance to accept the responsibility which he should, that yes. others want to put upon him. I mean, there's certain responsibilities he's okay with and certainly he's not and one of those is like okay you know i can defend you right here and now in the moment but i don't want people to look at me as an example or standard and that's kind of funny how people who often are you know should be examples and standards don't necessarily think that they're worthy of that right right um, so humility to a fault you might say in some but uh-huh. but that idea that he's not about although he has things he could boast about he would not boast about them i think that's right. a really important thing uh, again i try to pick examples when we we're thinking about toxic masculinity like what do we think it's somebody who does not believe something is due to them if, if a toxic masculinity is wanting things that he's the opposite of that earned. yeah yeah Someone who's yeah. the opposite and is humble may have earned things but doesn't believe they deserve them right uh the, the second one being perseverance and he's just someone that no, no matter how difficult the task ahead of him if it if it's worth doing he will do it and um Without having to go into long examples of times he does this in the book, just to read a quote, 
one from him that has, well, a couple that have stuck with me. And these, honestly, he could have been my only one because I think about these all the time. They just resonate with me, with me so deeply. And one of them is uh, he's, he tells a younger character he's mentoring in the books that the most important rule for being a man is that whatever happens, face it on your feet. Yes, and yes. That Which speaks he, to me he so lives powerfully. to. Yeah, he, he and lives it's that. not... You, yeah, it's not, he doesn't tell them what to do as far as like how to deal with the situation or what to do forward, but be ready and stand up and face it. You know, look it in the eye. Yes. Right? Don't turn your back on it. Don't run from it. Don't hide. Don't lay down and take it necessarily, but just be ready and and don't, don't shy away from things that are bad and hard. And, you know, it wouldn't be an interesting book if there was no conflict and it wouldn't be an interesting fantasy book if it wasn't about the end of the world. And so <laughs> you must face the end of the world on your feet. That's like the hardest thing you can face on your feet, right? And so that one, and he talks also about just, you know, this idea of knowing your limits and going on anyways. He talks about, to the same character actually, that no matter how much you think you know, uh, and I'm summarizing here, that you don't, you're never going to know anything. And everything, you, some of actually what you think you know is probably going to be wrong. Right. Maybe even the most important thing. But a big part of wisdom is knowing that fact, and a big part of courage is going on anyway and doing your best despite that. Right. And I'm like, you see the humility in that too, right? Like, I realize I may not be right all the time, but I still have to do my best to try and to persevere through even self-doubt. Um, and, you know, I, I, to not harp on him for too long, we didn't talk about this much when we were talking about toxic masculinity, but I think there's an aspect of shame there that's very powerful. Yes, yes, that, I agree. Um, cover, covering up for it, that cycle of shame of I did something I didn't like and I know it wasn't right and now I feel shame for it again, but I can't admit that. And And so... To be the kind of person that says you you have to persevere even through shame, like that's the thing I think that takes a lot of us out, modern day men, is yeah. the shame yeah. of, of knowing no that maybe we could do better and we're not we're not allowed to. Like at the same time that we're supposed to be sensitive, there's also this pressure, maybe from other men, maybe from that idea of toxic masculinity that you can't show weakness and you can't show fault. Right. Um, and so and, and so to persevere through that, I think is a really powerful example. Yeah, and that speaking of of previous podcasts like we did earlier, that's one of those things that uh, when you mentioned several biblical characters, um, we talked about how many of them are flaw first characters who they have to mm-hmm. wear their shame as they go forward, um, and and Lan is born into his shame, right? He doesn't actually do anything for it, but he still accepts it and and tolerates it. And I I know we need to move on, but I want to make one quick comment about his violence as well, which is that when he engages in violence, it's the minimum necessary violence. He never loses his cool and commits more acts of violence than than he ought to or that is necessary to control the situation. And I think right. that's also what we would call like true power um, and, and true strength. And true strength doesn't need to be unleashed fully. It can be unleashed in, in the minimum necessary effective dosage, um, yeah. which, which he, he exemplifies over and over and over again. Um, when he's dealing with various people, um, appropriate force, right? appropriate I mean, well, force, again, just like we talked about considering others outside of yourself. Yeah. You know, that's a consequence others are going to feel if he doesn't apply appropriate force, doesn't control himself. Yeah. Um, and, and that's true for all of us, right? We don't, we don't think about our words. We don't think about our actions and how they affect others. We might not necessarily pay the consequences immediately, but somebody else will. Right. And, and speaking, speaking of controlled force, my, my, my fourth one, my, my second to last is Uncle Iroh from Avatar The Last Airbender, which again, speaking of shows, if you haven't seen, you should go watch. It's a fantastic show. Um, Uncle Iroh is, so Iroh is the one who was supposed to be the king and rejected that and right. took up the responsibility of caring for his nephew, which apparently that's a theme for me. 
Uh, we'll we'll see uh, in multiple ways. Um, but his primary characteristic is forgiveness because, and and this is really similar to how Luke from Gilmore Girls functions. This is a character that does not have to endure the abuse that he does and still chooses to do so for the greatness of the people around him. And if I'm trying to think of a reason to justify being strong, right? Cause I want to be a strong person. And in many ways, I mean, if, if you chart out the narrative of anyone's life and I'm thinking of my life, cause that's the one I've lived. The, the whole story of my life as a narrative is really just a testament to my own weakness in, in every single instance. And mm-hmm. so I want, I want to reject that and I want to be somebody who's strong, but I think Iroh specifically exhibits why you want to be strong. You want to be so strong that you can endure the failures of the people who you love and be there for them when they figure it out, no matter how long it takes them. And that means you have to be really strong. And I think that's a justification for strength. Strength for its own sake, um, which I think a lot of men kind of tend to worship as just being strong is in and of itself an unqualified good. And I don't think that's an unqualified good. I think strength for the purpose of being able to endure and to be there for people is is really important. And so Iroh is abused verbally constantly. He is betrayed multiple times. He is even, you know, imprisoned and and mistreated. He loses his son even before we even meet him, right? He's he's gone through all of these different things. And the 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 man who is left after all of that abuse is exactly who was there beforehand, just rendered I don't know, even stronger, right? Because he's still there. When you when you figure out, when you have that aha moment of I've done this terrible thing, he's still there. And you can't even ask for forgiveness before he's forgiven you, right? He he meets you with forgiveness before you know how to ask. And that to oh, me is something yeah. that I want to be able to do. Because I, I know that not only am I going to fail my wife and my kids and, and you know everyone I know because I'm human and that just happens. I know my kids are going to fail me in, in really large ways and they're going to fail, uh, um, themselves and, and all of the people that they love. And I want to make sure that they know that when that failure happens, no matter how large it is, that the person that they can rely on is going to like, I'm going to be there. And that forgiveness is going to be before they can even think to ask that it's given even, even as they do the thing that requires forgiveness, right? It's, it's already going to be there. And I think that requires tremendous strength. And I think Iro exhibits that perfectly. Absolutely. I mean, to you know, he's the mentor for the evil character that turns good, right? Right. His, right. his nephew is is the bad guy for like the whole first season, basically. Yeah. And it's one of the more interesting arcs in the whole show. And, and it's, you don't see that. At least I'm sure there's other examples. I can't think of those. Typically, the mentor person is on the side of you know the one I just talked about, right? Lamb's the Lamb was the mentor to the hero of the story, the good guy. Yes. Um, Iroh is the mentor to the person who is not the good guy for a while, and he and he sees that in him. And I'm thinking of just scenes where his nephew realizes that he has done wrong and through great difficulty, because man, if there's not a, speaking of good examples in fiction, I think Zuko, Iroh's nephew, is a great example of toxic masculinity. Yeah. <laughs> much, of the, yeah. much of the show, that idea of not And the results of and, toxic masculinity, because his father yeah, is, is the one who kind of bequeaths that upon him. Yeah. And so when he finally does come to admit that he's wrong... What a what a powerful moment for Iroh to not chastise him or to say, yeah, you messed up, dummy. Like, I was telling you that the whole time. Or to reject him, but to say, you're right. Yeah, I'm proud of you that you realize that. 
and I love you, and I forgive you for that. Now you know, and let's let's hope we do better next time. Yeah, and, uh, and the person I mean, and the person you have become or could become is the person that I've seen the entire time. That because yes. because when you have a kid, what you're looking at is potential. You're not looking at anything that's been realized. You know, you're just looking at potential. Oh, yeah. And so uh, th- there's there's a a grace that is the product of strength that accepts that they're not who they're going to become and then waits for them to become that person. And then uh, a faith and a confidence in assuming that they're going to become that person. Uh, I think that's that requires incredible strength and incredible forgiveness. So I, yeah, Iroh is, is definitely, yeah. definitely could be number one for me. He's in the number two slot, but he, he could easily be number one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, just... The last thing I'll say about Iroh, another example of this is a character that has power, that has strength. Again, as men, that is something that typically we crave. Status, power, recognition, respect, right? That is something that men see value in. We arrange ourselves socially in a hierarchy as men almost all the time. Mm-hmm. And so for to buck that and to, say, and, and to forgive, like, it's weird because a lot of these, I think, you, you gain a kind of power and status and... and uh, recognition and respect for doing something that's almost counterintuitive to what you would think right. would get you status and power, recognition, and respect, and that's definitely Iro. Um, like you said, he he gave up the throne um, because he didn't want it. He didn't think he was the right man for it. I mean, right there, you know, <laughs> I mean, that, that right there alone yeah. is all you need to know about somebody, right? Um, okay, so for my number two, um, my my last two weren't weren't hard as hard as yours. Um, I'm sorry that if that is disappointing. No, 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 not at all. Not or if you're jealous that I, you know, I had such clarity of vision to put them in the right order without any kind of um, hemming, hawing, and hand wringing. Um, oh, well, ha- hand wringing is my my go-to, you know, sort of <laughs> yeah. state. Um, Jack, Pearson. Jack Pearson from from what is the from? He's the father in uh, This Is Us with the, the hit drama on NBC. Oh it's my NBC gosh! Right my wife told um, me. My wife said she said do Jack Pearson, and I said I don't know who that is. I can't do it. So I'm really interested to hear this. Smart lady. Well, I, yeah. I know that. So yeah. The whole conceit of the show is their dad's perfect. He's not actually, but that that's how they view him. And and you know they do flashbacks to him as their children, and you see what an amazing kind of guy he is. And you know it makes sense that someone like Mandy Moore would marry him because he's so amazing, right? Um, <laughs> She would leave her life of fame and glory to be a mom to this time, uh, or with this guy. But so Jack, I, the primary characteristics, and he has a lot of good ones. Um, I would say are uh, working on himself. I don't. There's a word for that introspection, maybe, but actually doing it um, as, as well as joy. Those are the two. I think they're kind of tied, and they kind of go hand in hand because I think to have true joy is meaningless if there isn't something broken in you, and there's something broken in all of us, right? Um, and again, as men, we're told to ignore that, repress it, to act aggressively to hide it, you know, point out the brokenness in others. But um, we are just as broken uh, on the inside right. often. Yeah. And yeah. so and, and so for Jack, you know, his and the show, he struggles with alcoholism and jealousy a little bit. There, there are two different arcs. There's one okay. where he's, well, they're kind of tied together. He's jealous of his wife uh, because there's another man kind of giving her attention and she's pursuing a singing career and... He's uncomfortable with the dynamic and, you know, other guys and this one one in particular and, and then the drinking, right? And he, and he, you know, has to conquer those demons. Sure. And his kids are in high school when he really begins to start working on it. And so they are old enough to be ashamed of it and to know and even comment on it sometimes. But Jack doesn't shy away from doing the hard work of the soul and yeah. saying, I've messed up. And I'm going to have to fix this. It is my fault. And even when you say something 
um, cruel to me about that. It's, it, it is my job. Not that I deserve it or he's beating himself up, but it's like, I, I'm going to have to do this. No matter what anyone else did, I, I'm at fault for some of these things or I'm at fault for this thing and I'm going to have to work on that. And he also listens to his wife um, in a lot of these. And and, and so the alcoholism Man, is Man, that's hard thing, to do. Also, right. <laughs> he tends to <laughs> dote on his daughter maybe a little bit or he's yeah. too hard on one of his sons. And when his wife comes to him and says, I think you're being too hard on him or I think you're being too easy on your daughter. You know, he he takes that to heart and eventually comes around to her way of thinking when she's right. Yeah. Man, that, that ability to, to look at yourself honestly and frankly and say, what do I need to change? What needs to change about me it needs to happen? And that comes out, I think, in joy because man, does he love his kids. Right. And man, does he respond to each of them in kind how they need it, which is why he's an amazing dad. He has three very, mm-hmm. you know, the triplets because it's a TV show and one of them is adopted and men black. And, you know, it's like the most TV thing ever, right? But, it's, <laughs> but it gives us some powerful moments to see a person who's so, you know, aware of his own insecurities mm-hmm. that he can then address them and act appropriately. And I think other than the dealing with the alcoholism, my favorite example of that is um, his son, Randall, who's um, his black son that's adopted, is choosing where to go to college. And he's freakishly smart. And he could go to Harvard. He could go to Stanford. And he's going to choose to go to a historically black college because it's the first time in his life he kind of feels like he fits in yeah. in some ways, yeah. right? Because he's around other black people. Um, and his dad, you know, rather than being like, man, well, there's something about me that's not good enough because I'm not black and I'm not your real dad and all that kind of stuff. is just like, hey, I support what you want to do and I take joy in that. And I think, yeah. man, somebody with less ability to recognize that that's what's going on in them, that, oh, this is my insecurity, would then project that out and say something, right. you know, and say, yes. well, you're choosing a, a poor school or, or it's about some other reason. Like, throw it back on the kid, right? And I, you're not, like you just said, you're going to mess up. You're not going to be perfect. And if you can recognize that it is okay, I don't lose all authority as an apparent, as a parent or as a man if I accept my limitations and flaws and I work to fix them. Right. You know, it's it's the opposite is what's actually true, right? It, it, it takes immense strength to be able to confront those things and to fix them and to get better. And the end result is that you are a better person. You are stronger and a, a cleaner, kinder, better version of yourself when you do that. So, yeah, Jack Pearson, introspective, changing, becoming a better person, whatever you want to call it. That would be mine. What about you? Yeah. Number one. Number. OK, for number our one. for our number ones. I, OK. You're going to think I'm crazy and people are going to hate me. I think we should wait. I think we should make the people, the good people wait for oh, our respective number one answers. And I think we should go <laughs> in depth and I think we should talk about specific examples of exactly what makes them number one. And and I say that because I'm looking at both of these and if we cut it short, we're going to do a disservice to both of these people because they there's so much room available. So... I think we're going to have to say that you've got to tune in next time to hear that that really excellent number one example of of just quality, virtue, character, ideal masculine narrative. So, right. I'm a cruel I'm a cruel person, but <laughs> but I think that's the best move at this point. Well, I believe it was Albert Einstein who said, you know, always leave them wanting more. Um, it was right it was him. it was Albert Einstein or or it was either Albert Einstein or um, um, what's her name? She had sex with JFK. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. That's the one. That's a t- that's a pretty big list for me to take a shot in the dark from. But, um. <laughs> but you got it. Hey, but you like Marilyn Monroe nailed it. So um, 
That's that's gonna get cut. Oh man, no, that'll be wonderful. I think that's a great idea <laughs> to hold it. I definitely don't want to do disservice to either of our choices. Yes. I I also want to talk a little bit more. I think just about what is what is positive masculinity. What does that look like now that we've built a narrative? You know, maybe kind of right. what does that look like? What is it? What what have we been lacking? You know, we talked a little bit about there's a strong narrative for women. We feel like yeah um, yeah out there not as much for men. So. If we're going to synthesize all this information, I think that's good as well. Plus, it's just really fun to think about people wanting to hear it and caring that much. Mostly because we assuming people <laughs> care enough about our podcast to want to listen to the next one. Obviously and most certainly they will. But with that said, I think we are just about out of time. So thank you guys so much for listening. This has been a longer episode, and I know that you are dying to hear those number one examples of positive masculinity, those great narratives, and I promise you're going to get it in all of its full detail, fully rendered, super HD. It's it's going to come next week, I promise. But this has been another episode of Two Dads Named Grant. I'm Grant Vickery. Grant Overman. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. <laughs>